This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Swing it a line drive, left field, Ben and Teddy coming on, dives, and did he make the catch? He did! He got it! Here we go. It's time to party. Right here. 3-2. Welcome to Benny and the Bets Podcast. Can you believe it? Here's your host, Terry Cushman. Good evening, everyone. And welcome to another episode of the Benny and the Bets podcast. Tonight covering Red Sox hot stove discussion. World Series just wrapped up yesterday, officially starting hot stove season. The Washington Nationals capped off a win following Game 7 over the Houston Astros. And what many might consider to be an upset... I am Terry Cushman, and I'm joined tonight by Al Nahigian and Aaron Graves. How are you, gentlemen? I'm doing real good tonight, Terry. Yeah, good Good to have you, Aaron. I'm good. Always a pleasure to come on with you, Terry. Yeah, we appreciate you taking some time out of your Couch Guy sports writing gigs and uh, as much of the audience uh, knows you are the host of the um, oh the end of the triangle podcast and uh, of course the legends lingo podcast how how are those going uh they're going pretty well uh, legends lingo we actually recorded last night which was today is Thursday yeah so we recorded last night Wednesday had a former writer from USA Today on uh, Antoine Staley. Uh, good guest, good episode, talked a lot, and, you know, we've been doing some different things, we've been doing some giveaways for Bruins tickets, we've had other guests on, so it's been good, and Into the Triangle we haven't recorded uh, in the past couple of weeks, but we're going to get back on it, but other than that, life's good. Good, good, and uh, Celtics, didn't they have a big win uh, just last night? They did, they uh, they beat the Milwaukee Bucks 116-105 after they were down 19 in the first half, so... Uh, Things are looking up for the Celtics. I hear that, especially now that uh, their version of David Price has gone to the Nets. So uh, this guy is worse. I think he's worse than David Price. But we can talk. You can hear my takes on that on Legends <laughs> Lingo and everything else. Okay. So absolutely. And uh, for everyone who doesn't know Aaron, uh, this is kind of uh, a hilarious story. Uh, do you want to do it, Aaron? Do you want to tell everyone how? Uh, you know, we met each other, or do you, you want me to just do it? Uh, you can do it. I'm, we tell the same story, so. Okay. Well, basically, I took a trip to Ireland, as some people might remember, and uh, the show went on without me while I was over there. And uh, there's a couple, well, there's a few islands off the coast. They are, what are they again? The Aaron, the, um... the Aaron Islands. And, yes, that one. Yes, and uh, I was on a tugboat, and uh, or maybe a ferry boat is the way to describe it. There's probably 40 or 50 people on it, and Aaron was sitting in this row right in front of me. We got talking, and turns out, you know, we're both from Maine, you know, we found out, and I'm like, oh, what town? And he goes, Wyndham. And I'm like, I'm from Wyndham. I graduated from Wyndham in in 2001, probably a lot late, you know, far ago from where Aaron graduated. But uh, and then we got talking Red Sox. And I'm like, I'm like, do you listen to podcasts at all? And Aaron was like, yeah. And I was like, have you ever heard of the Benny and the Betts podcast? Fully expecting uh, Aaron to say, no, no, never heard of it. And he had. And Aaron is the first person I've met publicly, you know, met in public that had listened to the podcast. (laughs) And, you know, and we discovered that on a little 
ferry boat off the coast of Ireland. That's how far, you know, I had to go to have that first, uh, you know, interaction. And <laughs> what are the odds? I, I tell people this story all the time and nobody <laughs> believes me until I pull up the Twitter post that actually proves it. Okay. I, I even didn't believe it for a second and I was listening to it. Yeah, I, uh, I, you know, I'll pull that up actually uh, as we get rolling and uh, retweet it or quote it or whatever, but um, hilarious. Yeah, and I mean, I could go to Fenway probably 20 times and and not not bump into anyone but but anyway so uh glad to have you on with us aaron i'm sure we'll have a a good show so we are going to do largely uh you know red Sox topics which is a change from the last several uh episodes but uh just some comments on the world series al let's start with you uh how surprised were you that the nationals uh pulled it off and what'd you think of the seven game series so on Legends Lingo, I said that the Nationals had a chance in this series because of their starting pitching. When you have starting pitching in Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, Patrick Corbin, and Anibal Sanchez, one, two, three, and four, you're going to have a good chance against anybody that you play, even a team that was a juggernaut all season like the Houston Astros. Now, did I expect them to win? No, I had Houston in six. So to kind of see them win four road games in Houston in a ballpark that, frankly, the Astros play very well in, it, you can't tell me that it didn't surprise you and everybody else in the world too because the road team went seven and oh in the whole series and washington won four road games like i said so definitely surprising but a great story and if you look at all the pitchers they had to beat you know uh verlander cole Frankie, and then through the national league playoffs you had to deal with the dodgers and then you had to deal with the cardinals with waka wainwright and that whole crew so great story for the nationals and a great ending Absolutely. I also thought the Nationals would, uh, excuse me, the uh, Astros would win the series. I don't know if I put a actual uh, game on it, you know, whether it was five, six, or seven. I, I think you said Houston in six. I'm pretty sure we agreed on that. Okay. And, but by I the could time, be wrong, though. I could be wrong. By the time the series started, it was, my, I mean, I, I figured it'd be a lot closer than I might have anticipated, you know, a month ago, but nonetheless, still had. Uh, thought thought Houston would win. Aaron, how how did what were your thoughts on it? Oh, it was. I loved watching all seven games of that series so much, and I was shocked that the Washington pulled out. I actually had Houston in five because I just didn't think that after the national starting pitching that their bullpen would be able to contain the Astros lineup. But. I also was a skeptic of the Nationals from the beginning because I wasn't convinced that they were going to get through Milwaukee in the wildcard game. Yeah, but. and and they in that wildcard game, they had to face Josh Hader, I think down one run in the eighth inning, and Hader, in every two-inning appearance that he had, was a perfect 17 for 17. So the situation was daunting, you know, pretty late in that game, and they uh, – you know, they got through it and, you know, five games set against the Dodgers, you know, won that fifth game and blew through the Cardinals. And I thought the Cardinals might win that one. I just thought facing Flaherty twice and um, uh, Wainwright had looked pretty good, you know, throughout the early part of the playoffs. And, and uh, but they just kept proving me wrong all the way through and, uh you know, so it's kind of nice to see the old Expos kind of get the monkey off their back. And uh, I'll, I'll add one thing. It's nice to see two teams with stud rotations in the World Series because I don't want big market teams, you know, going with the stupid opener theory. And, you know, so I, I wonder if teams will start to step away from that a little bit. The smaller market teams will have to do it, obviously, but... Um, but yeah, so one thing, so did you think, so did you think with two big market teams last year with the Red Sox and Dodgers that they had quote star studded rotations? Cause there were some pretty big names on both sides. If you think back to that one too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I guess, you know, some of the culprits, I think the Yankees, 
Um, you know, but they were injured, so you know maybe that that was why they had to get a little more creative, not having Severino. But but they also didn't make a move at the deadline, which probably um, you know eliminated any serious chance they had of uh, getting past the uh, getting into the World Series rather. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just think there, there was a lot of bad bullpens this year throughout the, throughout the league, and I just, I just wonder if teams are going to get a little bit more conventional. But, anyway, one of you has a little bit of feedback, but, um, like, audio feedback. Um, but uh, getting into uh, the Red Sox aspect of things, uh uh, Aaron, what were your thoughts on uh, Chain Bloom? Uh, I already watched that. Hyam Bloom. <laughs> uh, and let me say this: Hyam is not a uh, an auto. No, excuse me. It's not a talk to text friendly name on <laughs> on your phone. Like you can't use it and talk to text. It's just never going to work. Um, so. A little bummed about that, but uh, what were your thoughts, Aaron, on the hiring? I think it's a good hire, but I think it kind of predicts where the Red Sox want to end up going. Because if you take him from Tampa, who's been very under the luxury tax forever, and being able to put out successful fairly uh, regularly now, I kind of think that that puts it so it looks like the Red Sox are trying to get under that salary cap and trying to win without giving out these monstrous contracts that they have. That uh, seems immediately apparent, uh, you know, with his hiring. Uh, Al, what were your thoughts? I love the hire. I think that the Red Sox obviously needed a change in baseball operations. That's why they fired Dombrowski and brought in Hyam. And I also think that this is exactly the right guy in the right time with the right opportunity. People have said it. A lot of baseball people that know him personally or have worked with him have said he's an innovator, he's a risk taker, and he can develop young talent, develop farm talent, which is exactly what this Red Sox team needs. Now, it doesn't help that his first couple decisions have to be, do you hope that J.D. Martinez opts in and do you trade Mookie Betts? But I think he's going to handle it just fine and, you know, working 15 years with the Rays, he has the knowledge and he has, you know, baseball experience. So bring him on, and I think he's going to do great things here. The biggest thing for me is I think he embraces the current trends in terms of roster building and identifying value, something Dave Dombrowski never did, uh, you know, as it seemed. He, he got decent trade value uh, in a lot of cases, but... Uh, Dombrowski was very substandard when it came to actually signing free agents. So I think this is a huge step, you know, forward, you know, when you're trying to compete with the Astros and the Dodgers. And and I wasn't a big Theo Epstein proponent. I think a lot of Red Sox fans were due to the nostalgia and, you know, all the great memories from when he was the, you know, the Red Sox general manager, but he certainly had his missteps in Boston. And I think that Cubs team really is in a similar situation as the Red Sox are currently in. They've got some bad contracts. Uh, Some of their starting pitchers are pretty old. They kind of whiffed on the Hayward uh, signing, uh, the Kimbrell signing as well. Um, so I just, I, I think Epstein's mindset was a little bit outdated versus some of these, uh, you know, you know, the Astros Dodgers, like I mentioned, uh, and then with Friedman, I I wouldn't have minded that had he not agreed to re-sign with the Dodgers. I think the Red Sox held out as long as they could to see what his status was, but um, the the issue I might have had with Friedman is they're analytical to the highest degree. And I think, you know, putting Darvish in Game 7 in 2017 against the Astros, that cost them the World Series the moment his name was added to that card, uh, the lineup card. Uh, and then, you know, the weird situation against the Red Sox in the first two games where... 
Bellinger and Muncy were on the bench for the first seven innings because we were using lefty starters. And I just, I would hate to see that. Even if Devers and Ben and were in slumps, I just, there's no way I could bench them, you know, in, in a big game like that. And so that kind of got me a little skittish about um, Friedman. And then having Joe Kelly just get left out there to be shelled this year was kind of weird as well. And then finally, you know, when they when they bring in Bloom, that was perfect. And I've been on record saying that the Red Sox should look at the Rays, the uh, you know the Astros, the the Dodgers, and even maybe teams like the Indians who have been uh, creative uh, in years past. So um, I'm thrilled with it. I, I think it's the best case scenario. And I couldn't be any more intrigued as far as uh, what might be coming, uh, you know, within the next several weeks. It's going to be a fun off season. That's all I got to say. It's going to be a fun off season with Bloom at the helm. Absolutely, I'm super excited for where it's going. Yeah, I, I think he lead this team in a great direction. I think so as well. So let's kind of get into some of the moving parts here. Um, and I'm taking most of this from the press conference the other day, which you can, if anyone hasn't seen it, it's on YouTube. It's about 48 minutes long, but it's uh, interesting and at times entertaining. So uh, worth watching. Uh, the The question he got hammered on the most by at least four or five reporters was the status of Mookie Betts. And he didn't really dive deep into it other than saying a couple of different times, a couple of different ways that they're basically exploring all options with Mookie Betts. The one thing I did not hear that I was kind of looking for was they did not express any enthusiasm like, hell yeah, we're going to we're going to explore trying to keep him within the organization. There was no language like that whatsoever. And it's been my expectation since basically right after Trout got signed and it was clear that they weren't going to be able to sign Mookie last March before, you know, the season started around the time sale was signed. At that point, I kind of my expectation was he would be traded. But, uh, you know, Al, what were your thoughts with the, um, you know, with the, the language and the tone uh, you know, surrounding Mookie as as uh, Bloom fielded those questions. I think it's a case for Bloom where he actually doesn't know what he's going to do with Mookie. I think he just wanted to sort of get his feet wet, obviously have the press conference, and then the next step would be, okay, first things first, what are we going to do with this highly talented outfielder that was an AL MVP and everything else? So I think he handled the questioning just fine, and I think genuinely right now he's still trying to figure out, just like everybody else is trying to figure out, what's going to happen with him next year. So I wouldn't read too much into it. Aaron, your thoughts? I also didn't really read too much into it. I, What I believe the situation is, is they're not going to make their decision on Mookie until JD makes his decision on what he's going to do, whether he's going to opt in or opt out, just for monetary reasons. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up. Uh, they are trying to get underneath the, you know, the competitive balance uh, tax, also known as the luxury tax, which is uh, set this year at two hundred and eight million. And the reason why they're trying to do this is they've exceeded it uh, at least two or three years in a row. The draft picks that they've had have been lowered and lowered. I don't think they drafted until. 43rd overall the Rays had three picks in front of the Red Sox this year the Yankees had two picks uh before us so that's one of the reasons they're trying to get below it the the tax on it will be 75 percent so say we exceed it by 12 million we're going to pay an additional uh let's see 9 million on top of that so a 12 million dollar you know, tax hit, you know, ends up being 21. So 
that's another motivator. And uh, Aaron, when you mentioned the uh, you know the JD situation, he's owed roughly around twenty million annually for the next three years if he does not opt out. Um, Mookie is projected to get roughly twenty-seven to thirty million dollars. He was um, they settled at twenty million last season, so. Um, you know, so that's certainly going to be a factor here. I think if JD does opt in, you know, getting underneath 208 is going to be almost impossible with uh, Mookie making close to 30, especially considering uh, Eduardo Rodriguez, Andrew Benintendi, they're going into arbitration for the first time and will get significant raises. And then. Bogarts and Chris Sale's contracts rise considerably this year as well. So, you know, it's the Red Sox are in a tough spot right now, you know, in terms of uh, trying to get below 208. Oh, you can say that again. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then, so now getting into JD, I uh, haven't checked. I'm like literally checking twice an hour on uh, MLB trade rumors to see if uh, if the Red Sox have gotten any word uh, as far as to whether or not Martinez will opt out. There is nothing yet, but nobody has opted out yet that currently has that clause in their contract for this season. Steven Strasburg is another notable one. I fully expect him to opt out given that World Series performance he had and the fact that he's still fairly young. Um, But uh, so nothing has really happened today as a result of those. They do have five days to make their decision. Al, uh, what's what's your read on J.D.? I think he opts back in because you know what? And I wrote about this the other day on Believe in Boston Sports. Go check out that article on that particular website. I said he opts in for a couple of reasons. First off, first off, he's going to get he's not going to get as far as a bigger contract anywhere else. Red Sox are paying him like twenty three million. He's not going to get that at this stage in his career anywhere else. Number two, he knows that the Red Sox have a lot of talent on paper, and they know he knows that he they can get back to playoff contention and even World Series contention next year if everything falls into place. So why does he want to risk going to, like, I've heard rumors linking him to the Chicago White Sox. Like, why would he want to go there and win 70, maybe 80 games in a year and miss the playoffs again? So I And J.D. has come out and said he loves Boston. He loves being here. It's been his favorite team since he was a kid. So, you know, what? I think there's too many factors going into Martinez wanting to stay, and ultimately it would just be the smart move for him to stay at the end of the day. So I say J.D. Opson. Aaron, your thoughts? Uh, I'm on the other side. I see J.D. opting out because as much as he said he does love Boston, he's also made several comments about he's going to do what he's going to do what Boris thinks believe thinks is the better option. And he said multiple times that he doesn't mind hopping around for his career and playing for all these different teams. So I just, I feel like he's not going to come back because that's just, I feel like Boris makes his decisions for him. Well, I uh, I didn't mention this at, uh, so far this episode, but I just uh, started writing for BosoxInjection.com and I too wrote on I'm this. Back. What's that? Humble brag. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, Vosox uh, injection uh, is under the fan sided banner. But um, I, I wrote on it as well. And I think he's going to opt in as well. I just, I can't see him going to any National League team because he did kind of look really suspect as far as his defense went with some really routine plays the last several weeks of the Red Sox season. And you know, for a National League to not only give him the four or five year deal he's looking at at big money, and then he's a little injury prone as well. Had a foot injury a couple years ago. Had uh, lingering back spasms early uh, this past season. I just I can't see him being anything but a DH, and 
a huge liability as an outfielder at big money. So I just I don't think the National League is going to be in play here. And then the Yankees are over the luxury tax. They will have a little bit of money coming off the books with possibly Gardner and Gregorius, but that could be offset by the fact Aaron Judge and Gary Sanchez will both be arbitration eligible. And there's reports that the Yankees want to sign Garrett Cole. Starting pitching is their, you know, area of need. That's why they could not beat the Astros. So whether they, they're going to have to win a bidding war with Cole for sure. And that signing will probably put them in a bad situation financially, given the fact that they are over the luxury tax, you know, much similar to the Red Sox the last couple of years, we were just really handcuffed when it came to acquiring, you know, other talent. So um, I don't, I think because of that, I just can't see JD going to the Yankees. I don't think the Astros will be a possibility. I just, because only Jose Altuve is, is, signed beyond you know the next two years as far as their veterans go obviously Alvarez is still on his rookie deal as is Correa who has a couple years left Uh, Springer is coming into the last year of his deal much like Mookie is and I just don't see the Astros being the team uh, to sign him so who do you have left at this point the Indians are going to be sellers and the I, I couldn't find a report confirming that Cruz's option had been picked up by the Twins, but it sounded very much like they wanted to a few weeks ago. So I think they'll take that route over over JD. So it's it's a tough situation for sure with JD. I mean, another option you can consider if JD does leave is Edwin Encarnacion because just today, According to Yankees PR department on Twitter, Yankees declined the 2020 club option for first baseman DH Edwin Encarnacion. So it could be interesting to bring him on for a year if JD does leave, but I prefer JD, and I'm sure you guys do too, if that were the case. I I would as well. Here's a question, though. How desperately do the Red Sox want to shed as much payroll as possible? Like, do they want JD back? They should want him back. I don't know how much they actually do, but they should want him back if they want to be at all competitive because we saw in 2017 what happened when they didn't have that staple in the middle of the lineup, that power guy. Do they really want to go through that again just to save some money? That's an excellent point. And, you know, if if Mookie gets traded as well, I just feel like, (laughs) I mean, where's the offense going to come from? Exactly. You have to keep one of them. And the more the more likely option right now is JD. So if you do, if Bloom does decide to get rid of Mookie, then you have to do whatever it takes to keep JD in a Red Sox uniform. You don't want to have to go down a route like an Encarnacion or something. You don't want to do that. Yeah, and Encarnacion, he does have killer numbers at Fenway, but he is approaching, I think, 36, 37 years of age. Um, you know, and has had injury issues, uh, you know, the last few years. And uh, he had, I forget what his injury was with the Yankees, but he had a pretty serious injury that kept him out about six weeks just this season. So, um, I believe he's right. What's that? Yeah, I think he's right. Yeah, the wrist. Oh, it was the wrist, absolutely. And I, I remember being surprised that he came back that quick because, you know, your wrist obviously, you know, takes a lot of stress, you know, when you're when you're making hard contact, you know, with a baseball. And uh, I was kind of impressed that he, you know, was able to return. And he, he did kind of scuffle a little bit throughout the playoffs, but um, it didn't appear to be injury-related, so... Um, he's, he's the type of guy, much like Nelson Cruz that will, for as long as they produce, they're going to have a job. So someone will, uh, take him. Wouldn't be surprised me if Tampa got a hold of him. You know, that, that's a move that, that they would make, but, um, I'm trying to think, I thought I had some other stuff about, uh, JD, but 
the the one thing though that I think the Red Sox need to do is they need to be a little more honest with us if if they think next year is going to be more of a transitional year, you know, to get some of these kids up like Dahlbeck and maybe uh, Tanner Houck into the rotation. I think they should just be honest about it and and just tell everyone, you know, it's going to take us a year to get resituated here. But then, and then once they're under the luxury tax and those penalties are reset, you, the sky's the limit again. And I, I just hope that under Bloom's, you know, leadership, that, that that's, you know, the style that that he has. It's a style that he can have, but when you look at the product on the field, you don't have a lot of young guys. You have some young ones, but you have a lot of, excuse me, a lot of players that are in the primes of their careers, and especially when you just came off, you know, last season where you did win a World Series title. It wouldn't surprise me if he tried to make some short-term moves to try to get the Red Sox back on track in 2020. Yeah, and, oh, go ahead, Aaron. Uh, you you got that one. Oh, I was just saying, you know, they're going to have a tough decision here with with Brock Holt and Devers isn't coming off a third. I think we know that at this point. So I think I really think Chavis is going to see some time in spring training in one of the corner outfield spots, and then Dahlbeck will if he's going to be able to come up shortly, you know, after spring training or even start the season right away, I think will be the, the first baseman going forward. I just think seeing Chavis, you know, go to second base and adapt pretty seamlessly. I just think he's very athletic and, and, uh, you know, could, uh, potentially just, uh, slot into the outfield. They did plan on doing just that with him at the, in the, uh, Arizona fall league, but apparently that oblique, uh, injury hadn't quite fully healed. So he, uh, you know, they kind of nixed sending him there, but you know, so like I said, at, we don't have a second baseman at this point, you know, uh, unless they bring back Holt, I know C.J. Chatham is another touted prospect that could come up. More of a contact hitter, but, uh, you know, he could be uh, a, a future full-time second baseman. And, uh, yeah, and then what's going on with Bradley? Is he going to be back? God, I hope not. I really hope not. I'm not a Bradley guy either. <laughs> and you you know, because I've, I've been on here a couple times, you know how much I hate Jackie Bradley. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I'll be the third one to chime in. That I also hope that Jackie Bradley isn't back. Yeah. The, the slumps are just painful. We can't argue his defense, but, I mean, how bad is Benintendi going to be in center field, uh, you know, minus having the cannon arm? Like he'll cover a lot of ground, I, I guess is what I'm saying. And I, I don't think he'll be any worse than Jacoby Ellsbury. Can't be worse than Hanley Ramirez either. <laughs> yeah, well, that's like you need a space shuttle to get to that end of the spectrum. But, yeah, he was uh, – he was. <laughs> you never know in this day and age. He was pretty terrible. You can terrible. never forget that Sam Travis plays in the outfield now also. True. He could, uh, he could definitely be a bench guy. I mean, Mitch Moreland's gone. Can we agree on that? Absolutely. And uh, Steve Pierce as well. So we have the young, inexpensive, you know, bench depth to Zue Lin. Not that that's a sexy option, but he's he's a body that could be plugged in, you know, in a pinch if there's an injury or if uh, someone's not ready to get called up yet. But, but. I, I don't know. It's just one of the many reasons I'm intrigued here. And if we trade Bradley, you know, what kind of value are we getting? You better hope a, a mid-level prospect, maybe a veteran-ready reliever. I'll take a bag of baseballs for Jackie Bradley Jr. at this point. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
Um, let's see. Uh, Dave Bush will be the new pitching coach for the Red Sox. He spent uh, much of the last year in uh, like an analytical role, you know, evaluating, you know, prospects and whatnot. And he did spend a little bit of time with the big league club. Uh, any thoughts on him? Aaron, you can take it first if you want. Um, I don't really know that much, that full amount about him. I'm concerned that we might turn into one of those teams that relies too heavily on the analytics side of things and not as much on the baseball side of things. That could happen, you know, but I guess I thought Levangi kind of had to go. He was kind of clashing with some of the, uh, you know, the assistant GMs. Brian O'Halloran, Eddie Romero, Zach Scott, and apparently there was a lot of philosophical issues there. So bringing in Dave Bush could, you know, potentially, uh, I don't know, shake things up a little bit. I don't know that that's going to keep Chris Sale healthier or David Price healthier, but, uh, you know, the strikeouts weren't quite there for, for David Price and... Um, you know, I just feel like anything at this point is is an upgrade over uh, Levangi. Along with Aaron, I, I don't know too much about Dave Bush either. I have his stats right here, and his stats aren't great. During his MLB career, which featured appearances on four different MLB teams, Blue Jays twice, Brewers from 2006-2010, and then the Rangers for a year. He was 56-69 and 69 with a 4.73 ERA. He even played a year in the KBO, the Korean Baseball Organization, 4-6 with a 4.43 ERA. So obviously when you see his stats, it's not great, but obviously stats don't really matter if you're a coach. But I don't know his philosophy. I don't know his style. So it, it's, a bit, it's a big mystery that we'll see in spring training, I guess. It just depends on how they use the data, but – you know, one of the things that gets more ominous every year is the fact that we haven't drafted, you know, an ace type pitcher since John Lester in 2002. So next year will be the 18th year since we've done that. You know, we've always, you know, signed guys from outside the organization. And one of the nice things about Bloom is that he comes from an organization that develops aces left and right it seems like and you know currently with Blake Snell and um, Tyler Glass now is from outside the organization but they've had guys like James Shields and uh, Matt Garza David Price came up as you know as a Tampa Bay Ray he was a number one draft pick anyway overall uh, I think uh, was that 2006 or 7 something like that um, but, uh, I just think organizationally, we need to re-examine, you know, especially in the minor leagues, how we're coaching and developing that talent as, as, as each pitcher rises, you know, from low A to high A, high A to double A and, and so on and so forth. And I'm just hoping that that Bloom can figure it out. He's the Bloom man. He'll figure it all out. <laughs> yeah, he will. You know, the funny thing about him is he has a, such an enchanted sounding name, but he looks like the bad guy from No Country for Old Men. <laughs> did you see uh, or did you hear what he said about uh, the Rays when they asked him if he ever had a press conference like that with the race. <laughs> he did, yeah. And he said, no, never. No, he said, um, he said, yeah, there's a couple more uh, people in this press conference than in uh, all of Tampa or in all of the race stadium. So, threw a little dig at the race, which I thought was kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. And usually their press conferences, from what I, I have heard, are usually just three or four different reporters. One of those is uh, was Liz... Churchville for a couple of years, you know, was a beat writer with uh, Tampa. Hey, so. Liz, good friend. Yeah, 
Yeah, so uh, a very tiny uh, press corps. I, I've heard, I listened to Mad Dog Russo in the afternoon on his uh, Mad Dog Unleashed show, and he had a guest on there that was just going on and on about Tampa and how they, even throughout their five-game set with the Astros, their local sports stations weren't even talking about it. They were talking about the Bucks and and, you know, and... <laughs> Not really interested in baseball, so I think that goes to speak about how bad their you know press coverage is. And I mean, Boston's gonna feel like a shark tank for you know for Bloom. Um, an, be able to handle it. Another um, thing that was interesting that got asked uh, to Bloom was the fact that. General managers don't seem to last very long. Epstein did last, you know, eight, no, actually it might have been nine or so years. And then Sherrington just a few years, Dombrowski just a few years. And whether that, you know, was a concern and led to certain questions and and Bloom didn't, uh, you know, it didn't seem to bother him. And then ownership was asked, you know, why they only interviewed him and no one else. And, if it was unusual to interview just one and Henry admitted it was unusual, but they just were that impressed with him. And I'm just wondering the front office kind of has a reputation for not handling certain controversies well. And so I'm wondering if bloom will kind of have a longer leash now because of that, as they try to clean up their image. He might, I mean, it's, it's TBD. I think it's to be determined. Hopefully it doesn't follow the same pattern as you just said, but you know, if he makes the right moves, does everything that he sort of did in Tampa, he could be here for a very long time. I'd like to see it for sure. I was never really like hardcore Dombrowski. I didn't, it wasn't until some of the signings last winter where I was like, geez, this guy needs to go before he screws up anything else. And, you know, so I wasn't a big fan of him. I wasn't a big fan of Sherrington at the time, but in hindsight, I'm not sure a lot of those moves were his moves. You know, Bobby Valentine, for instance, was forced on him when he wanted to hire Dale Swaim uh, coming into the 2012 season. And, and you know, the Panda thing was kind of a marketing gimmick and, uh, not sure about the you know the motivation behind Hanley, but I I don't know that Sherrington really ever fully had the reins. Yeah, it, Sherrington's time here was sort of weird, and then obviously you bring in someone else that sort of takes over for what Sherrington started to build, and then they win a World Series. So go figure. Yeah, Sherrington turned down the Mets a couple years ago, or maybe it was a year ago when they brought in uh, Van Wagen in, and I thought that was interesting, you know, because it would have been a higher-paying gig, and he elected to stay in Toronto to keep developing their farm system, which, I mean, I they might be ready in just a year or two. They, they just need, they'll need to start signing pitching, you know, with Biggio and um, drawing blanks. Who was that? Brichette. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, Guerrero. I mean, they've got tons of explosive talent within their um, within their lineup. And so, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, he, he's just doing a phenomenal job up there uh, in Toronto. But um, let's see. What about... Do you think they'll try to move one of these impossible contracts? I don't think Sale can really be moved at this point, but do you think they'll try to get creative with Price or Evaldi? I think the only one of those contracts that you might have a chance to move is maybe David Price. And that's still a big maybe, in my opinion. That That's a tough one. That, that is really, really tough. Yeah, I might have to agree with Aaron. You, I mean, Price is a is a more known name. It's, you know, David Price. He's pitched well in the, on the big stage now. He's had the past where he's, you know, been in contention for Cy Youngs and everything. So 
if you can do it and get some money off the books and still keep a solid co- uh, core rotation intact with Sale and Rodriguez and Eovaldi, why not? Yeah, that it's a tough situation. Uh, I kind of agree with you guys that Price could potentially be the most movable one. At the same time, I trust his durability more than I trust Chris Sale's and, and even Evaldi's for that matter. But, you know, it just depends how motivated they are to to shed payroll here. And I think the way to handle a potential price trade, if that's something they want to do, is to kind of lay low for the first part of the winter and wait for Cole to get signed, wait for Bumgarner to get signed, maybe even Odorizzi, and... And then go find the runners-up in all of those deals and be like, well, you know, we have David Price, big money, but only three years left. And I think some of those teams might be confident in their pitching programs enough to say, well, you know, maybe we could bring him in and tweak some things and, and you know, get some some decent starts out of him. There are some teams in the NL East that could use some starting pitching. Just throwing it out there. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking about them today. You, Every team in that division, except the Marlins, is a big market team. Like, has anybody ever thought of it that way? I mean, the Mets, kind of a big market team. Phillies definitely are. Braves definitely are. And uh, who am I forgetting? The Nationals, of course. I mean, they got the second richest ownership group in MLB, so... Um, that, that's a team. That's definitely a division that could take price. Here's one more question actually. And I think this, this could, you know, make an impact on price, especially the balls throughout the season were juiced and MLB. I don't know if they ever fully admitted it, but they kind of admitted that, you know, they were different and, and, you know, there were certain characteristics that made them, you know, carry, you know, further, you know, over the fence. And, uh, and then you get to the world series and then the balls are different. Like they're deadened and you're seeing a lot of balls dying out in the outfield and, and on the warning track. And I'm just wondering, like if they keep the balls for 2020 that were, the ones used in the playoffs, maybe Price's numbers will improve since he'll be able to pitch to contact a little bit more because I don't think pitchers could trust whether they could pitch to contact throughout most of the season because balls that weren't looking like home runs, you know, coming off the bat were home runs. And I just think, you know, that could be one factor uh, you know, for, for Price having a bit of a turnaround this year. David Price has to execute his pitches, plain and simple. doesn't matter what type of baseball he's throwing. If he executes and he can throw his, you know, his cutter on the out, outer half and jam guys in with his fastball and everything, then it shouldn't matter what baseball he's throwing. If he executes, he'll be fine. Yeah, I just, there were so many foul balls. Like, it just seemed like he was getting seven, eight, nine, ten pitches in the counts with certain batters, and it just, it was an issue. And I don't know, it was just one of the things that, uh, you know, I was looking at. But I'd rather I'd rather see the, the lesser juiced balls that were used in the postseason. You know, this strikeout or home run, you know, situation that we had all year long. I mean, it wasn't exciting, like, you know, I just kind of got numb to the home runs. Like, oh, there goes another one. You know, and it, I don't know. It just wasn't the same. Just like the famous Queen song, Another One Bites the Dust. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. I agree on that. There's nothing I like more than watching a good pitcher's duel. Yeah. And then, you know, base running and small ball and just all these other elements that just weren't so prominent. There was one series, yeah, it was the it was the 
the Astros Yankee series where there was one game where Smoltz was like, yeah, the infield hasn't had anything to do all night. Nothing is, they're not taking any grounders. Everything's going into the outfield. <laughs> so it was just, you know, the Yankees are a launch angle team. So, you know, that's why, but I don't know. That was just an observation. So I'd like to see MLB kind of get back to that. Um, one other thing uh, here that I took from the press conference, and I can't remember the reporter who asked it, um, whichever one it was pointed out how front offices, and I think the Dodgers were one of the culprits he had in mind, you know, are basically taking the lineup card out of the manager's hands and and a lot of them aren't very forthcoming about it. You know, for whatever reason, front offices don't like to admit that a lot of the lineup decisions are coming from upstairs. And Bloom was asked specifically that. And he said that he doesn't foresee a situation like that happening. If it did, he would be forthcoming about it. But he doesn't think it's it's collaborative, which, you know, was a key word used throughout much of the, the press conference, not only by him, but by Sam Kennedy and ownership and whatnot. And I got very much the impression that Alex Cora still has the most influence on, you know, what the card looks like every night. And that is, you know, to me, that's the way I would like it to stay. Right there with you. I mean, this is the guy that in his first year brought home 119 total wins and was dealing with a lot of controversy, a lot of adversity last year. So give him control of the lineup card every day and just let him do his thing. 100% agree. If a front office is going to hire a manager that don't trust to make the lineup, then they probably should hire a different manager. Yeah, and Boston's a different animal. Like, I don't think... I don't think Bloom or anyone in his capacity would want to be the punching bag, you know, because of a weird, you know, alignment from the night before or whatever. And, you know, in a market like this, it's just better to have a smart guy in the dugout that's making, you know, a lot of the decisions you know, Hinch, I think, is one of the better managers, and and I know they are analytical, but I think he still, once the game starts, is the chief decision maker, and he took a lot of heat for not, you know, going to Ozuna in the seventh inning instead of Harris, or just giving Cole a clean inning. I mean, you got this stud ace in there. It's the last time he's ever going to pitch for you, and, you know, so... A situation like that, like if if that move happened in Boston and the decision came from upstairs to do it just like that, much like the Dodgers with Joe Kelly in in the final game of the NLDS, I just it would be chaos <laughs> and you know not a good situation. I kind of have a different take on that one personally because I don't know if you heard the interview after game. Five, but when they asked Garrett Cole if he was going to be coming out of the bullpen, he said, "Absolutely not. I'm shut down." Oh, did he? I didn't hear that. I didn't even. I didn't know that either. But he did pitch. Yeah, he was warming up. But I don't know if he wanted to be in that game. Oh, okay. If, if, you, if you don't want to be in Game Seven of the World Series, then get the hell out of here. Give me a break. <laughs> well, I, a weird situation that I did learn today was that. He kind of got irritated with the the questions from the beat writers after the game, and he said that he's not he doesn't pitch for this organization anymore, and he doesn't have to answer those questions. And then he went and changed and came out wearing a Scott Boris hat. <laughs> so I'm like, geez, you know, way to go from good guy to bad guy. <laughs> you know, it's like in WWE, you know, turning heel or whatever. Um, you know, real quick, but, um, yeah, but I think he cleaned it up, uh, today on social media by, um, I saw like a tweet from him thanking Houston or whatever, you know, the fans. So maybe, 
maybe that was a bit of a cleanup job, um, you know, following the, you know, the weird situation moments after the game ended. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, do you guys have any thoughts that we didn't cover here as we uh, approach the one hour mark? No, I think we pretty much hit everything that we needed to. Okay, uh, let me just say one thing, you know, about Houston. It was a bit of kind of a bummer to me because I like the fact that a dynasty can exist and and win multiple championships. And, you know, so, and I like a lot of their players anyway, big Verlander guy, big Altuve guy, you know, especially after that, you know, home run off Chapman. But, you know, so... I think every fan of every team, you know, hopes that their team can become a dynasty. And so to watch it kind of fizzle right there, it was just like, ah, bummer. I think it was kind of funny how big Jim Murray said on Twitter that he, he said, congratulations, Astros. You're now the 1990s Atlanta Braves. Which I think <laughs> it's a little unfair because it's only been really three years, but they keep doing this for a couple more years and then they don't win another world series, then yeah, then maybe you can draw some comparisons to those 90 Braves. Yeah. Well, I mean, they shouldn't have any problem winning the division. I mean, Oakland seems far from being situated. Uh, You know, I don't care if Madden's the manager of the angels at all. That organization is a dumpster fire, you know, based on how they build their roster and uh, you know, who's left in that division. Texas, you know, has a bad farm system, won't be competitive for a little while, and neither will Seattle, really. So, you know, I, I think they'll have the luxury of, of cruising into the playoffs every year without having to worry too much about that one game wild card. And then you got, you know, I hope they can retain Springer. I like him a lot and I just I think it'd be a good story to see him you know, be in that organization, you know, for his whole career. And they got Verlander a couple more years, Grinky a couple more years, couple of uh, stud pitching prospects that could uh, potentially be called up. So, I mean, they're, they're in a good spot and uh, just be interesting to see how they handle some of these free agent decisions. I don't think they'll stick with Correa given his injury concerns and that weird uh, incident with the masseuse you know, that uh, fractured his rib. But uh, if that's really what happened, but Ugh, yeah. That just, sound, that just sounds painful. Yeah. Somebody said on Twitter right after, was the masseuse an elephant, you know? And I was like, oh, it sounds okay. like that was like, it, it might have been, he probably lied, but I don't think the Astros were in on the lie. It was just all Correa, and I think the Astros just went with it. They're like, he's injured. It's not going to change anything. We'll go with his story. And, you know, he and he struck out quite a bit in the playoffs, but uh, did have a couple of uh, big home runs. So, yeah, any uh, any final thoughts, Aaron, before we wrap? Um, I just... Uh, kind of a continuation on the Astros for one sec. Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm not concerned, but I'm intrigued to see how, like, the locker room handles this because leaving Cole in the bullpen at that point, whether he wanted to pitch or didn't want to pitch or whatever, it's very similar to the Orioles several years ago when they let Britain in the bullpen. And I kind of think that from that moment on, the clubhouse lost their, uh, um, they lost their, God, I don't know problem with the words i'm trying to say <laughs> lost their confidence in showalter from leaving britain in the bullpen and i know that it's not the exact same situation but it's fairly similar yeah and i'm surprised showalter though hasn't even despite that hasn't landed a gig i thought he'd be perfect for the mets but yeah but i guess it, it just kind of remains to be seen i, I think hench will uh kind of get a get a handle on it and they'll uh you know, probably go deep next year. So we'll see. But anyway, uh, you know, I appreciate you guys coming on. Well, uh, let me just check one last time. I don't think uh, anything's developed uh, as far as JD goes. Nope.
bunch of other options getting declined. Oh, actually, no, Kluber got picked up, so I don't think that's a shocker, though, with the Indians. But, yeah, so we'll just kind of keep an eye on uh, how the rest of it plays out. But he has until some point on Monday, and then um, we'll kind of see how the other dominoes fall. So, anyway, have a good night, guys, and uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Terry. Thanks for having me. I do not remember what episode this is because it's been so long since I've done one. Around 180, but uh, nice to do some Red Sox talk. And um, we'll probably come back Monday to get the verdict on Martinez and cover anything else that may develop with the Red Sox and maybe some some bigger stories from around the league. The GM meetings are uh, either, let's see, next week or the week after. So some potential dominoes could fall uh, that week as well. So um, have a good uh, end of your week and uh, we'll Talk to you Monday. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Swing it a line drive, left field, Ben and Teddy coming on, dives, and then he makes the catch, he did! He got it! Here we go, time to party, right here, 3-2. Welcome to Benny and the Bets Podcast. Can you believe it? Here's your host, Terry Cushman.